first got there, they put you either in woodshop or you had to go into drafting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I didn't give a crap about woodworking. I didn't give a crap about uh, drafting. But you had to take these classes. Retired music executive James Starks lived near the Dalton Street Post Office on a street called Willstatch. But I knew what I wanted to do from the time I was eight years old when I first picked up a guitar. I knew what I wanted to do. Hear his story on this episode of the West End Stories Project. I'm Key, manager of the Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Libraries West End Branch. Thanks for listening. Before Mr. Starks was born, his parents were forced to leave their hometown of Elberton, Georgia, after a harrowing incident. Were your um, mom and dad the first ones to move up here, or was there already family up here? Let me see. Uh, I'm trying to remember who moved first. My mom and dad moved first. Well, my father moved first. My mom stayed there. My father left Georgia. He had to leave Georgia because they were trying to kill him, you know. In those days, I mean, this was good grief. Early, they tried to kill him. A mob tried to kill him because it was a a group of white guys. They tried to rob him, like four of them, and he beat them off and cut one guy's ear off. Mm. So he had to leave because they were trying to lynch him. You know, they came to my grandmother's house because my father and mother and my oldest sister, Helen, was born in Elberton. And they came and they wanted to search the house. And my mother, my grandmother, uh, my grandfather, and my aunt, Azura, were all sitting on the porch with shotguns. <laughs> and they were like, you know, the sheriff came and said, well, we want to, uh, we're going to, they want to find my father. And they say he's not in there. And they were like, well, we want to search the house. They said, you can search it, but if you get anything else, you're going to get shot. So they looked and didn't find him, and uh, shotguns are loaded. They were like, okay, you come in, but you're going to, if you try to take anything, you're going to have a fight. <laughs> you know, my father didn't take any crap, and neither did my mother. <laughs> you know, we, we didn't take any crap from anybody, you know, mm-hmm. and that's the way we were raised. Don't start anything, but do not run. Mm. And that's the way we were instilled, you know. It's like we didn't start trouble, but we didn't run from it either. If you started something, either, you know, you all in. For most of their time in the West End, his family lived on Willstatch, a short street that was south of West Liberty and east of Dalton, where Heidelberg Distributing and the Wegman Company is now. When I was born, uh, we were living on a street called George Street. It was on... uh, 6th Street uh, was to our south. I forgot the street on the left, but I was only three years old. But we moved to uh, Willstatch, which was between Liberty and Wade Street. Uh, We moved there when I was four years old, and that's when I attended Sand School. But uh, all that's gone now. You know, matter of fact, there's freeway there. Um, you know, Liberty Street is still there, comes down, and the uh, main post office used to be down on Dalton. So uh, Crosley Field, where the Reds played, was only four blocks uh, north of us. And uh, Union Terminal, where the train station is, which is now Ezra Charles Drive, that was, let me see, it was one, two, three, four streets over. So we would walk there and we played at uh, Union Terminal most of the time, you know. 
In the early 70s, his family moved to Avondale after the city rezoned the area for industrial usage. Can you describe your place on um, Willstatch? Sure. It was a, uh, like a brownstone. It was a two-story house, and uh, we lived between, we were the middle building between other buildings. Uh, we owned our own house. Uh, some people down there did, some people didn't. But most people on Willstatch uh, owned their own homes. You know, so it was a nice neighborhood. I mean, uh, in the middle, when you went left going down toward Dalton, you knew you were going to have to fight. And if you went north going up toward Freeman, you knew you were going to have to fight because that's what they did. I mean, if you went to the store every day going to the store, you knew you were going to get into a fight or some kind of altercation because that's where um, all we used to call them the bad kids. They hung out, and they just would mess with you. You know, so between them and the cops coming to, uh, you know, hassle you for no reason, that's just where that's the way it was. So, you know, when we first moved to Willstatch, I remember uh, a lady that used to babysit us, you know, watch us because we were really young. Her name was June James. She lived next door. And people would mess with her, and we'd, you know, run and tell my mother or father, ah, nah, nah, nah. And then my mom would say, you know, go just back off. And I remember June telling my mother, she said, Miss Ruth, if you're going to stay on Willstatch, you better, your kids going to have to learn to fight. You got to let them go. Quit, quit telling them just to back down because they'll never be respected unless they hit back. And my mm-hmm. mother, well, I don't want them to fight. And June said, if you don't stay here, they're going to have to fight. And she was right. So one day my mother said, if somebody pushes you, then you know what? You push back. And from that moment on, guess what? Nobody bothered us because they found out we could push back, only we pushed harder. (laughs) We pushed harder. (laughs) Mr. Starks was the third oldest of nine kids and a second oldest brother. So his father made sure he had skills to support the family. There were nine children in my family, and my mom and dad, uh, my dad worked, my mom didn't. She was a homemaker. She had to stay with all of us. And I was the third oldest, uh, and I remember she used to uh, be angry with my father uh, because I started working with him when I was nine years old. Mm-hmm. And she would always say, you know, he's too young to work. He's, he, and, she, and my father would say, look, he's got to learn, he's got to learn now. And she, he would say, uh, you know, I'm not going to be here always. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started working with him when I was nine, and my older brother Larry started working with us maybe a year later. And uh, we would cut grass in Silverton and Kennedy Heights, you know, for a lot of rich families in those days. But my father had a full-time job. He worked at uh, the milling machine, which is now Millicron. Uh, mm-hmm. So he worked there until he died. You know, matter of fact, he died at work. You know, he was only 53 years old. But my mom kept us together, you know, and everybody who wanted to graduate, we all graduated. Everybody who wanted to go to college went to college. And I don't know how she did it, but she kept us all together. I mean, she was an incredible, strong woman. He attended Sands Elementary School and Lafayette Bloom Junior High School, where he started nurturing a lifelong interest. Tell me about um, Sands. What was it like there? Sands School was great. I mean, uh, you had certain teachers uh, that really cared about the students, but then you had teachers that I think they hated themselves. Uh, a math teacher, I never will forget it. His name was Warren Jones. And the only thing he used to tell us about was 
when he was in the army. When I was in the army, you know, we were like, you never went to the army, man, because you know, you knew, we knew he'd never gone to the army because in those days they wouldn't take you, and he had one leg that was shorter than the other, right? So he wore his high mm-hmm. heel, but he was our math teacher. And instead of trying to teach us the basics of math, if you didn't get what he was saying, he said, okay, you get in this row. And he said, this is the dumb row. Mm. And we're like, what do you mean? we're not dumb. This is the dumb row because you don't understand what I'm saying. You know, and we're like, I never will forget his name, Warren Jones. So a lot of the kids who could have been aspiring mathematicians, he just took their self-esteem away because they, they figured they were dumb. But after we left sand school and got to bloom and got some more teachers, they were like, people aren't dumb. You just have you've never been taught the basics. And a lot of people just realized, well, hey, I'm not stupid. This guy just couldn't teach or didn't care enough to teach. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, it's it's true. But we had some teachers there that really cared. Uh, Miss O'Donnell, I had her twice. She was my teacher in the fourth grade. And then in the sixth grade, I had Miss O'Donnell again. But the saving grades was a guy named Mr. Robertson. Mr. Robinson was the music teacher. And if you wanted to join the choir, Mr. Robinson taught you how to read music. He taught us how to read notes, uh, the values of a whole note, the value of a quarter note, or an eighth note. He taught us intonation, the whole works. And that was a saving grace for a lot of the kids there. And... uh between Miss O'Donnell, I guess, and uh, Mr. Robinson, they taught us. And then I went on to Bloom, and uh, that was an experience. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Why? <laughs> Bloom, Bloom was different. You couldn't go outside uh, at lunchtime. You had to play on the roof, on the rooftop. Mm. Uh, it was like being in prison, sort of. But again, what's the saving grace was music. You know, I had a teacher uh, named Mr. Gamby who was the uh, instrumental music teacher. He did the band and the orchestra, and I played violin. And uh, he taught me to play violin. I was classically trained, and uh, he was cantankerous, and Gamby was Gamby. You know, <laughs> everybody knew it, but he excellent musician. Played every instrument. He played them well. Trumpet was his, was his main instrument. But I think he even taught my friend uh, Walter. Walter Lomar is my best friend. Walter was playing uh, viola, and he hated it. And he, Walter couldn't play it. He said, this, this instrument stinks. So he never played anymore. But I, I played violin, and then uh, he only stayed there one year. When I was uh, my first year, when I was 12. And then he went to Taft High School. And that's where he stayed, uh, Mr. Gamby. But then Mr. came in next. Mr. Turner came in in my eighth grade year, and he was a good teacher also. He taught violin. And then uh, who else came in? Mr. Curtis, Charlie Chester Curtis. <laughs> Mr. Curtis was cool cat, you know. He uh, kind of a hippie kind of guy, you know, but he was a good instrumental music teacher also. And... Um, Blue was good. The only thing about it, it was just so regimented. When you first got there, they put you either in wood shop or you had to go into drafting. This was, if you were a guy, you had to take these. It's like 
if you were a lady, a, a female, you had to take home ec and sewing and typing whether you wanted to or not. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I didn't give a crap about woodworking. I didn't give a crap about uh, drafting. But you had to take these classes. I was like, why? I'm not going to do this. It's not what I want to do in life. Well, that's yeah. what you're going to do. It's like, it doesn't matter. But, you know, Bloom, we survived it. And um, you got used to the fact that you couldn't go outside. And when you went up on the, on the roof to play during uh, your lunch period after you had your lunch, you got to the point, you well, if the basketball flew over and hit the street, you couldn't go down again. It was just outside until some teacher went to get it. But at Bloom, too, guess what? You had that element where... You knew you were going to get hassled at lunch, and you had to fight at lunch. <laughs> That's just the way it was. After his father died, he transferred from Central High School in Clifton to Robert A. Taft High School in the West End. So I started singing a lot then in the joint ensemble. Of course, Mr. Gamby got mad because, well, you should be playing violin. I don't want to play violin, you know. That's not what I want to do. So I stayed in orchestra about a year, but I was like, that's it's not what I want to do. I want to sing. I want to sing. I already had a group. Uh, I, was, I was writing songs. I wrote my first song when I was 15 years old over at Union Terminal. <laughs> it was called Stranger I Love You. I wrote it one night, one foggy night. I was walking in the park by myself, and I just imagined uh, myself in London for some reason, really foggy and in my mind, I was like, okay, there was this girl. And I was like, hey, we just started talking. This is in my mind, I'm thinking. And we talked for about 15 minutes. And then when I was leaving, I remember her saying, you know, you're a stranger, but I love you. And so I wrote a song called Stranger, I Love You when I was 15. <laughs> <laughs> and we would, I would bring it to to our class. You know, we had like a group. We called ourselves the Four Chances at the time because there were only four of us. And uh, Jerome was in the group. My older brother Larry was our uh, bass singer. A guy named Gwendon Player. Gwendon was our uh, between. He sang tenor, and I sang tenor baritone and Burton bass. Now, even though my brother Larry was our bass singer, he could get higher than than anybody. So he could get lower and higher. He had a great octave. And we were singing together. Then Walt joined the group, so we became the Five Chances. So when we brought in Longmire, he became the Five Chances. And we recorded our first record, which was Strange I Love You, at 17 years, 16 years old. And the flip side was I Love You, Baby, Yes, I Do. And that's where my brother went to Marines. And this was in 1967. And then... Uh, He turned 20 years old on January 13th, and he got killed on March 22nd, the same year. So he's just a kid. He's just a kid, you know. And, I mean, that just tore me apart. I mean, for like two years, I didn't function, you know, because a part of me was gone. You know, my brother and I, we were like twins. We thought alike, you know, so it was just like part of me was missing, you know. And you never get over it. And to this day, I've never gotten over it. You know, you try. Uh, you don't get over that. You don't get over it. It just doesn't happen. You know, we, uh, but it was it was fun. Taft was good. Taft was some of my uh, best years. There were 333 people in my graduating class in 67, and 
I was number, I think, 17. So I was in the upper 10% when we graduated. Mm-hmm. So school to me was easy, really. It was either I made straight A's when I wanted to, you know, <laughs> it was something I really wanted to do. You know, if, if I made a C, my mother would go, you know you can do better than that. Well, yes, ma'am, I can. I just didn't want to. She said, well, now you got to do it. So mm-hmm. I remember my last report card, I had all these. And I was like, okay, now you're happy, Mom. Yeah, 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 because yeah, I know you can do it. So <laughs> that's what we did. But it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, Taft taught me a lot. And I've, I've always known what I wanted to do. I wanted mm-hmm. to be in the music business. And when I graduated, I had uh, five academic scholarships. You know, I had one, two. University of Cincinnati, Central State College up in Wilberforce, Ohio, Shaw University um, in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And I had one to uh, University of Tennessee down in Knoxville and mm-hmm. one, I think, to Orangeburg, Orange, Orangeburg State in Orangeburg, South Carolina. And you know what? I've never wanted to go to college. Never. Mm. Never. And they were like, well, go. The only reason I went to college was to keep my brother Larry out of the service. And he joined mm-hmm. Marines, and that's when he got killed. But uh, he's always the one that said he wanted to go to college. I was like, I don't want to go to college because, in my mind, no college could teach me what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. No college could teach me the music business. You know, you could teach me how to play an instrument. But that's not the music business. You have to get out there and mix it up. You have to be a part of it. And I knew that. Nobody could teach me what I wanted to do. They could not teach me the business of music. Yeah. And the only way you learn that is get out there. And that's what I've done for the rest of my life. And I knew what I wanted to do. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the West End Stories Project. The Western Stories Project is brought to you by the Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Library and is co-produced by your host, Key, and our reference coordinator, Kent Mulcahy. If you like what you've heard, listen and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and help us get discovered by leaving a review. Thank you. I knew what I wanted to do from the time I was eight years old when I first picked up a guitar. I knew what I wanted to do. And I remember telling uh, Mr. Gamm, you got any guitars in the orchestra? He said, no, we don't have guitars in the orchestra. You play this violin. Well, you know, <laughs> I got good at it because in, uh, I think in the ninth grade, we had an all-city orchestra, and I was concert master. You know, and this is for everybody in the city of Cincinnati, Dr. World was a superintendent of music, and I was first chair, which was unheard of because there was no such thing as a black violinist who was a concert master at that time, and I was. And people were looking at me like, well, who are you? I said, I'm a violinist, and I'm first chair, so guess what? I tune everything. I tune the orchestra up. It was unheard of. It was unheard of. But wow. Mr. Gamby, he, he taught you, and he taught you well. You know, He was just cantankerous, and Gamby was Gamby. You know, that's the way he was.